1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll read all 58 verses. I'll bring out a New King James Version, as is my custom. God's Word declares, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas and by the twelve. After that, He was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, He was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, He was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. <clears throat> Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Now there, But now, Christ is risen from the dead, and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Afterward, those who are Christ at his coming, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For, quote, he has put all things under his feet, unquote. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him, who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts of Ephes at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me if the dead do not rise? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one. 
What you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body which shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as He pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward, the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of man of the man of dust, so shall or we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now, this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Powerful passage of Scripture that is going to direct our attention to a single fundamental principle, and that is about the resurrection. But within that fundamental principle comes a lot of uh, arms that reach out into our lives, into our hearts, into our thinking, and ought to transform us as we consider the power and the, and the principle of the resurrection of its hope, of its uh, of its means, of of what it looks like, how it's going to occur. Um, we have an opportunity to learn so much, and learn we must. Um, and one of the warnings that we have from the very beginning, and the reason I want to read the whole chapter is because at the very end of this chapter we have the same warning. And we're going to see this contrast 
between the sure hope of the resurrection and the word that's going to be used there on several occasions throughout this chapter is uh, vanity, a futility. And this word is going to keep cropping up, these, this group of words is going to keep cropping up throughout this chapter that either the resurrection is real and true and genuine and the work of Jesus Christ has power or we have nothing. There's nothing to rejoice in. There's nothing to live for. There is nothing to die for. There is nothing. You, you, there's just vanity. And what a powerful contrast that Paul paints throughout this, that once we begin to question the resurrection, which Paul had had to deal with that early on in his ministry, um, and we, we look at it probably most penetratingly when we get to uh, Athens on Mars Hill, when everyone was willing to listen to him and kind of evaluate him as just another philosophy, a philosophizer of religion, until he gets to that statement where he says, this one Jesus, God rose from the dead. And as soon as they heard that, oh, that's such foolishness. And yet it is the resurrection that is the power of our salvation. We do re- reference the blood of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, and rightly so, and the Bible does do so. But the fact is is that fundamentally it wasn't necessarily just the shedding of blood that was requisite, but the victory over death and sin that was required of our Lord. So we come to this study of the resurrection, and this is not uh, hopefully so familiar to us that we treat it with disregard or think that we have nothing more to learn of it. That would be very dangerous. And the reason it's so dangerous is because there will always be a line of people at the door uh, of your life, of your heart, of your mind, that will want to introduce uh, questions about its validity, questions about its historicity, questions about its effectiveness in your life. And that was what was going on in Corinth was there were individuals introducing error by bringing to doubt in anyone's mind on any level the working of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have just finished really what I think is a section of Scripture uh, that should be handled as a group in, in beginning back many chapters ago with the phrase... Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Right after that verse, he also talks about what true knowledge is like. That when you have mature knowledge of something, that there's going to be a foundation laid there that no one can move. So just having a cursory knowledge about the resurrection simply isn't enough. It's the kind of knowledge that can puff you up and then somebody comes along, some agnostic, some philosopher, some someone that just doesn't believe and can start trying to pop their your resurrection bubble, so to speak. And Paul doesn't want that for the Corinthians. He wants them to have a mature knowledge. 
And so he's going to use some um, understanding that without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. There is no salvation. And there is no in-between. There is no middle ground here. There is no place for concessions. For once we concede anything away from a full bodily resurrection of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we've lost. Once we concede any of it, we've lost. We've lost it all. There's no reason to be here. There's no reason to have a Bible. There's no reason to pray. You've lost it all. And so Paul wants to address this area that was apparently under attack in the church. You could almost imagine one of the factions in the church being the faction that says, well, you know, the resurrection isn't real. You know, and you could almost see them trying to do the verbal gymnastics of allowing for Christ to be resurrected. But if you die without Christ, and some had because of the improper way that they were conducting their Lord's table, um, that you have no hope. If you think that's weird or strange, we have a cult out there today that's teaching just exactly that. That if you aren't surviving till Christ comes, that you just cease to exist. That's the Jehovah's Witnesses. Once the 144,000 were completed, called the John class in their teaching, um, their belief now is that they're going to follow Jehovah and... Um, once they die, they will cease to exist. Their only hope is if they live long enough for Christ to come back and to be part of His kingdom. Fundamentally, they reject the resurrection. And everything that Paul says in this chapter about the condition of men without the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true of every adherent to that False teaching. So it is around us. It is real. And you will find people that will laugh at the idea of the resurrection, just like the Athenian philosophers. You will have Christians who bring, want to bring it into doubt, just like the people in Corinth had to deal with. And so these are fair warnings for us. And we'll see this idea either there is a true resurrection of Christ and of all who have placed their faith in Him or our faith, our entire belief system is absolutely worthless. And it boils down to that. That if there is any one cardinal doctrine that we would pull out and say without that truth, we have no hope. It is the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ who He is and what He has done on the cross is vital. But it is to the resurrection that has been efficacious for us. It has been put to bear upon us. It has given us hope. A sure hope, not wishful thinking. And that's how our world uses the word hope. The Bible does not. It is a sureness, a sure anticipation of something. And so we are going to see hope presented 
against vanity. Let's look in the historical principle, the historical facts of the resurrection that we're going to see in weeks to come. Some other aspects of it, we're going to see what it accomplished. Um, And after each point, he is going to again go back and say, now, what happens if it's not true? What happens if the resurrection isn't true? Then this point I just discussed with you isn't true. So let's look at it. Beginning verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 15, it says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which you were saved, So we have a series of statements to describe the gospel that Paul from the very beginning preached this. And so anyone that wants to come along and reinvent Christianity without it hasn't figured out that at its source, at its root, at its beginning, the consistent message was Christ has raised again. That one that you by wicked hands have crucified, God has raised again. That has been the message from the very beginning, without exception, among the historical foundation of Christianity. It is what has been declared. It is what has been preached, proclaimed. It is that message which was received by those who were called Christians. It wasn't just the leadership that held to this quote-unquote foolishness, but rather all those around them. And you have ample opportunity for many around Israel and in that modern day to go and examine these issues and to expose it as error if it was indeed error. There were enough enemies of Christianity among both the Jews and the Romans to do some simple research and to do some uh, examination of the claim and to debunk it. But in fact, what we find is that people believed it. As it was proclaimed, they believed it not because they were gullible and not because they were uh, superstitious. They believed it because it it was undeniable. You couldn't produce evidence to the contrary. So it was preached, it was believed, and of course, what I've already alluded to, it is that which gives us the strength to stand. We're going to get into this extensively in about three weeks, about the whole idea that you cannot stand in your Christian faith. You cannot deal with tribulation. You cannot deal with opposition. You cannot really... uh, have anything to grab onto in terms of what's going to be required of radical Christian life um, and what it means to suffer here if there is no eternity to look forward to. We'll look at that in several weeks. But the foundation of our stand, not only of our initiation in Christianity is the resurrection, um, but our sustaining Christianity is the resurrection. And ultimately, um, verse 6, by which also you are saved, and that is our completion, our, our, but that is the full salvation, is all derived from the, this doctrine, the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
that is founded on the power of the resurrection. In Philippians, and we're going to reference this passage quite frequently. I'm I'm not afraid of that. I mean, it's just going to happen. In Philippians chapter 3, and we will be there often over the course of this, we find Paul making a very great declaration that again is pressed into the idea of the resurrection. I'm trying to think how far back I want to start. Let's start at verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. And going back to the study of the resurrection is of absolute necessity for our church to strengthen us and to give us safety. And we should not see this as just a tedious exercise of something we already know. As soon as you take that attitude, you're walking out into dangerous territory. Paul sees that for the Philippians. Says, Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision. Worship God in the Spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. And this um, is going to come out extensively in the whole idea of our stand and what we suffer for Christ. But let's continue reading verse 4. Though I might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcise the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God by faith, that I may know Him, and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings be conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. How can we stand and what does our salvation really mean? Well, it means that that resurrection of our Lord is ours. We symbolize that in baptism. We're going to be talking about baptism in the course of this chapter. That we who died with Christ are going to be raised to newness of life. That's not just in this life alone, but it is in the one to come. That we will participate in this resurrection, this spiritual body that is awaiting us. And we are going to marvel and, and, and hopefully enjoy so much the discovery and rediscovery of what it will be like to put off this mortal and to put on immortality. These are the wonderful promises of God that can only be ours if the resurrection is real. So Paul seeks to drive himself that he may know Christ, know the power of his resurrection, then he can share in the sufferings, be conformed to the death, even as Paul's going to say in Corinthians, I'm going to die daily, because there awaits a resurrection. That my objectives aren't ever going to be fully met in this world. And so we anticipate a resurrection, not wishful and not just in a dream world, but, but with truth and reality fully engaged. 
we strive. And our salvation will be accomplished, will be fulfilled in that day. So Paul lays it out there. This is basically the outline for his presentation on the resurrection throughout this chapter. But he has a conditional clause that we're going to keep discovering. The conditional clause, if. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And this is a very sobering statement, isn't it? In the course of considering all the excitement and wonder and joy of, of the resurrection and what it means that when Jesus comes again, that, that the sound of the trumpet, the voice of the archangel, the shout, boom, the dead in Christ will rise again. We who are alive and remain will meet Him in the air. We consider all of that and we go, that, that's exciting. But then we have this little if word that is sobering. And many have tried to make very little of it. They've tried to subdue it. Well, he didn't really mean that they might have been believing in vain. Um, and they've done that to many passages of Scripture. And I struggle with every time we do that, that we come to these serious warnings and trivialize them by saying they weren't genuine. Whether they be in Hebrews or James or Christ's own teaching. Uh, and we go through them and and we see these warning passages, and, and I'm not ever going to find myself, I hope, uh, trivializing them to the point that we can disregard them. The belief that we hold so strongly to eternal security that we can disregard all of these if passages, all these warnings, um, is a danger. And so Paul says you could believe make some profession of faith. You can make some statement of belief in Christianity in general, but if you deny certain fundamental truths of it, such a belief is worthless. Really? Yes. You can be claiming to be an adherent to Christianity on whatever basis, because you were born that way, because you were born in this country, because your parents were... Um, or because um, you just you like some aspects of it. Um, but when it comes down to the actual truths, you're not really so gung-ho on some of them. This is one truth that if you're not fully committed to it, you do not have a genuine faith that can save. You might say, well, Pastor, I believe it today. I think, and this is exactly what the Corinthians would have said, I believe it today, I think. Oh, we need to be affirmed in it. We need to be uh, rooted in it. And Paul says, listen, your belief can't, it's in vain if you're not going to hold fast to this. If you're not going to cling to this as your hope, as your deliverance, you have nothing. Believing as much as you want is not going to save you. If in that belief system there's no room for the truth of God's Word, the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Christ in your system of thinking and belief is just another man who taught 
moral truths and died a horrible death as an innocent victim. And that's where your story of Jesus ends. Just another man who started another religion. And he just on the shelf alongside of men like some of the Buddhas and Confucius who have come and gone. And that's all you really want to consider about Christianity. Then I would contend that what you believe about Jesus' historicity is vanity. It's worthless. It is not sufficient to save. The Bible says even the demons know this. They believe Jesus is, they believe more than that. <laughs> Does them no good. And so the warning stands that we need to have an enduring aspect of belief this is not irrational. If that were so, there would be no reason for the next few verses. But based upon the evidence there, and the work of God in my life, and my acceptance of His Word as absolute truth, I am willing to conform my life to this truth. The Son of God came to this earth lived a perfect life and indeed did die a horrible death but that he rose again the third day conquering sin and death. And upon this we stand. Upon this we are saved. Upon this truth we live. And by it we will endure anything. So let's look at the historical argument. First we find Paul's preaching. He's going to talk about, this is what I declared to you. This is the gospel I preached to you. And here it is, in a fine nutshell. Paul, in verse 3, says, I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. But he received this message. He delivered it to them. He did not pervert it. He did not... Uh, change it. He did not add to it nor subtract from it. This is what he gave them, is what he received. He heard it from the apostles. He, he interviewed them. He heard their preaching by the way. Yeah, he heard their preaching. He was out there hunting them down, but he was listening very intently because he was listening for some reason to for cause to persecute them. And here is his message. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That is, not that the Scriptures were written of the Gospels. He's not referring to the Gospels. But that just as the Scriptures prophesied that Christ would need to die, Christ died. From Genesis all the way through to the final prophets, the declaration was that the Messiah, when He comes, must die for the sins of His people. 
This is what has been declared according to the Scriptures. Christ died for our sins. It was necessary and that Christ really did do it. Just as Isaiah declared, um, not only in the idea of just the death, but the whole how he was to die was in perfect conformity to all of the prophetic statements. Paul says, this is nothing of our invention. Go back into the Scriptures. Read them. What will you discover? One born of a woman is going to crush Satan. What have you read in the Scriptures? Look at the sacrifices of Israel. Consider the tabernacle. Consider the high priestly role. Consider the Holy of Holies and what it takes to penetrate that. Consider these things. Look at all the Scriptures. This is not our invention. Christ died. Just like He was supposed to have. This was God's plan for the deliverance of mankind. Go to your Scriptures and discover it. And then, of course, we have the historical record of the Gospels. Um, Possibly Mark was available by this time. Um, But we have it certainly recorded out of God's Word that this is what had to happen. And yes, he was buried. So we do with dead people. And then, he rose the third day according to the Scriptures. There had to be a resurrection. And this also is affirmed all the way through God's Word is that there is going to be that entity, that one who would come and conquer death. That David spoke about in his Psalms that, that the prophets referred to this, this branch, this, this one that was going to come whose name is life. It will put his enemies under his feet. As, as Paul himself is going to quote later on this chapter. And that last enemy being death itself. And so, this was nothing that the men listed here in the balance of this passage invented, that they came up with, that they just kind of sat together as a bunch of fishermen and taxmen and whatever else they did for a living, and just kind of sat there and put their heads together and came up with this idea of uh, a resurrection. It was not Paul's idea. It was there all along. This is God's plan. This is God's story. And Christ is the fulfillment of it. Jesus was the one. He has come. He has done as He has, has... foretold he must do, it has been clearly evidenced. It has been witnessed to. We stand now on the better side of history for now we get to look back at a historical event where Israel was looking forward to an historical or to a a future occurrence. We stand now and look back with it already historically evidenced. And many have gone out trying to Proved that it never happened and it failed. Many of them today are believers 
and the one they denied. The recognition that there is more evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ than for most of what you learn in world history class. Providing your world history goes back to Mesopotamia. Yeah, there's more evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ than for large amounts of what they're teaching you in world history class. Again, our faith is not irrational. It is super rational because we see God at work in history. And it was necessary for these things to happen and they did occur. The Christ had to die. And He did. He was buried. He rose again the third day. Had to. And He did. Just like the Scriptures said He would. And now let's look at the other evidence in this courtroom of faith. Let's bring out some witnesses. Verse 5. So the first evidence that we have is that this is not their invention. This was something God foretold way, way back, thousands of years before its occurrence. God said it was going to be like this, like this, like this, like this, like this. And in Jesus Christ, we see every single one of those required elements occur. Okay, well, that's circumstantial evidence, right? Something like that. It's not an easy comparison, but we're getting there. So let's bring forth some eyewitnesses. Let's bring them in. Let's set them on the stand. Let's hear what they have to say. He was seen by Cephas, Peter, and then by the twelve. He was seen by over 500 brethren at once. And if you still believe in group hallucinations, you have more faith than most Christians. It's easier to believe that it really happened and believe that everyone thought it happened, imagined it happened. When Paul wrote the book, 1 Corinthians, a majority of those 500 people were still alive. They could still be written to, they could still be interviewed, they could still be interrogated. Paul says, the most of them are alive today while I'm writing this. They can still, I mean, you want to prove it wrong? Go find them. Try to torture it out of them that they all lied. That they all imagined it. There's a preponderance of visual eyewitnesses to Christ. After that, he was seen by James, then again by all the apostles. And so we have this record of the resurrected Lord's interaction with his followers. These were not men that were prone <laughs> to taking great risks to advance falsehood. These were guys that ran away at the garden. 
These were men who went off to go fishing, who simply hung their heads down and went back to their old life. Something. No, take that back. Someone changed them. And this group of cowardly followers were transformed into the bravest, boldest bunch of people that could not be silenced even in pain of death. What kind of power transforms such individuals? Well, Paul knows. See, while they were his followers in his living time, Paul becomes a very different kind of eyewitness because he was Christ's enemy when Christ was alive. He was among those number. He was at least a follower or a a student under one of those men that engaged Christ not as a benefit, but as uh, as a benefactor, but as an opponent. And here he stands as eyewitness, saying, "The last of all." Verse eight: He was seen by me also. I saw the Lord. I was his enemy. I was seeking to destroy. I was seeking to snuff out that witness, those statements. And you just wonder how many of those who had fallen asleep, who had seen the Lord, Paul was personally responsible for their sleepness. He says, I was his enemy. Not ex- I mean, take someone out of the enemy's camp, bring them in, and have an eyewitness say, I saw the Lord. He showed Himself to me. He is alive. And He transformed me. Not from being a cowardly so-so follower into this bold declarer of God's truth no matter where, no matter what, like Peter. He transformed me too. He transformed me. As He described in Philippians, from a confident man in Himself in his flesh, in his learning, in all that he believed, and he transformed him into a servant of God, a follower of Jesus Christ. Wow. One of the eyewitnesses was not a follower of Christ, but his enemy, who was leading the attack against God's people, And he presents himself as an eyewitness. Recognize he was born out of due time. He was the least of the apostles. Not really worthy to be called one because he persecuted the church of God. But by God's grace, he was saved. That he could now be an eyewitness to the resurrection. He could now be counted among that number. And it says... His grace toward me was not in vain. And there's that word again. 
Listen, Corinthians, I need to ask you, have you believed in vain? Because now you're questioning the rudimentary truth of the power of the gospel, which is the resurrection. Is your faith in vain? Let me tell you something about my faith. My faith is not in vain. The grace of God that is extended to me will not be made worthless. I will never be found. No matter what men try to bring against me, I will never be found to deny or even question the resurrection of my Lord. I'll be impervious to that because of the unmerited favor. I didn't deserve Jesus showing Himself to me. I didn't deserve that at all. I was hunting down Christians. And I am not going to waste or make waste of that kind of grace that God put toward me. In fact, I have a greater debt to pay. And so he says, I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Because I was so deeply engaged as the enemy, Paul recognized he had a greater debt to pay. He says, by God's grace, I'm going to work and I'm going to work and I'm going to work. And we look into these verses and we see a motive for Paul that God had brought into his life. What is it that gets him up off of the garbage heap that he was thrown in as though he was a dead corpse, not even worthy of burying, and gets up and brushes himself off and goes on? What? motivate someone to do that? What is it that drives him tirelessly to go on? Even when warned by other prophets saying, don't you go down there, you're going to be arrested, you're going to be bound in chains. And he goes on. I must, I must, I must, I must. Well, he tells us in Philippians what drives him. I want to know Christ the power of His resurrection. I want to suffer with Him so that I can attain to the resurrection of the dead. He had a goal in His life. And He saw God's grace and the power of the resurrection transform Him. And He says, how can I do anything but absorb myself with repaying, at least on, I can't, but at least at some level, this great debt I owe. I must give everything I am, all that I have, to this endeavor, to the Gospel. Because He has taken me, the greatest of sinners, and made me His child, and has offered me to participate in the resurrection of the dead. Wow. Wow. And so we come to this passage Paul says, God's grace towards me isn't vain. What about you? It's been preached to you, whether by me or Apollos or Peter or Jesus, whoever you want to claim, remember back in the first few chapters, whoever you want to claim, we all preach the same message. You've muddied it somehow. You've perverted it, but the same message is there. And you did believe it. And Jesus Christ, 
Him resurrected, was it worthless? Are you not standing in it? Hold fast to that truth which you first received. For it is the power of God in your life. And let it drive us as it drove Paul to labor even more. And I'm not going to compare myself to others because my sin can't be compared to theirs. The grace that I've received, I'm not going to compare to others. But rather, I'm going to labor the more abundantly because I know what my sin is. I know how much God's grace has transformed my life. I know what it could be but for His mercy. And I will serve Him all my days. Oh, that that would be our testimony. That that would be our motive. That that would be a drive that will move us in our Christian life to depths of service that confounds our friends, our family, our enemies. Throw what you will at me. And I will rejoice in tribulation. I will be glad that I was counted worthy of suffering for his name's sake. I will consider it a privilege to be hated by men. Why? Because the resurrection was real. And it's made an eternal difference in me.